On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dong Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dong group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dong's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. I am your co-host, Stefania Secha from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. And with me, as always, is the stoic, legendary, wonderful Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. I finally get to reverse everything, Michael. <laughs> but how are things going for you guys over in Ontario? Well, when you did that intro, I was actually looking around to see if someone else was joining <laughs> us. But <laughs> who? That's um, Right? It you makes know, you feel good. It's a good affirmation to start with. It is feeling standing tall or sitting tall. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you something. You know, so we all know um, this is our first podcast that we're recording in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, with uh, the pandemic uh, surging, at just the worst possible time during the holidays when people were off. And so it's been quite challenging, and I'm sure it will continue to be. But man, you know, I am so fortunate to work with such a good team. They've stepped up, they continue to do that. They are just so passionate and loyal to uh, our most vulnerable. So it, it's pretty inspiring. So how can I complain when, when they're doing life-saving work? So it's, it's, it's pretty great. Uh, how about uh, CAH? What's going on? Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned Omicron, and I don't know if I'm saying it right, uh, right out the gate. It's one of those things you read over and over again. Um, and I think right now our big focus is uh, kind of uh, knocking on the doors of the federal government and provincial governments um, and health leaders, because I think we're kind of almost a little bit scarily back to square one in March 2020, where we're running low on PPE. Now we need N95 masks because they're the best against this new variant. You know, I think uh, the big the big ticket is uh, getting that funding back, you know, as we've lost sort of those isolation spaces that we had for some time in many communities across the country. You know, we need to kind of get things back in order because it's really um, it's really going to hit the most vulnerable population, folks who are out on the street, not to mention that it's winter. Um, and, you know, so I think our, our big concern is helping those burnt out frontline workers who are just like hanging on and doing incredible work, keeping people safe. So, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. Um, and yeah, you know, um, but speaking of some incredible people working out there right now, maybe we can introduce our two awesome guests that I'm really excited to have a chat with today. 
Yeah, that's a good segue. And I mean, I also, it sounded, we, we started this podcast on such a downer note. Um, so let's have some positive energy. And mm-hmm. these two individuals absolutely are bringing that. No pressure. So first, I'm going to introduce it. If it sounds like I'm reading it, it's because I am. Because these people are so awesome. They have done a lot. There's no way I can memorize all this. So we have Isabel Casante, uh, Director of Research, Public Policy and Evaluation at the United Way. Greater Toronto. So Isabel has over 20 years of research, evaluation, and program management experience in academia and the non-for-profit sector. Currently, in her role as Director of Research, Public Policy, and Evaluation uh, with the United Way of Greater Toronto, Isabel is responsible for developing and implementing the organization's research and evaluation strategies based on strong evidence base, a commitment to addressing systemic discrimination, and a solid foundation of partnerships and relationships. Isabel believes strongly in collaborative learning and leadership and the need to integrate the strengths and perspectives of all stakeholders involved. She holds a BEd from the University of Regina, BA and MA from the University of Calgary. And, you know, if that wasn't enough, she's also a PhD in Literature and Cultural Studies from the University of Toronto. Dr. Isabel, welcome. And we also have the amazing Trisha Scantlebury, who's the Senior Manager of Research Public Policy and Evaluation at the United Way, Greater Toronto. Tricia has over 10 years experience leading research and policy studies while working collaboratively with the nonprofit, public and private sectors. Tricia currently oversees research committed to housing policy, specifically how it strengthens the social infrastructure with low-income power communities. And we're gonna hear more about that uh, coming up. She's held various roles with the United Way since 2015 focusing on immigration policy while identifying ways to better coordinate formal and informal services to strengthen uh, immigrant and newcomer communities. Awesome. Trisha volunteers for the multi-service community agency, Sistering. Sistering's awesome. Way to go, Trisha. Uh, and supporting, which uh, supports social, socially isolated women and trans people who are unhoused or precariously housed in Toronto. Trisha holds a BA from York University and an MA in Sociology and International Development from the University of Guelph. Isabel and Trisha, welcome to the show. Thank you you so much for having us. Yeah, we're so excited to have you folks um, and learn more, you know, about the report you're working on. But before we kind of dive into that, you know, we've been asking uh, all of our guests this first question, and the two of you are the first ones to answer it for us in this new year. Um, And that question is, what does home mean to you? And Trisha, let's start with you. Sure. Well, thanks again for having us. We're really, really excited to be here with you. Um, So when I think about home, I really think about it as a place that should be providing us with a ton of comfort and should be offering us stability. It should be a place where children can play and where they can feel happy, whether they're inside or outside, where families can gather comfortably, have tons of space. You know, definitely it should be a place that's also affordable. Um, Our home should bring us, like, we should be happy there. They should be places where we know that we can thrive, where we're protected from the cold that we're experiencing right now in Toronto, especially um, heat from, you know, really damp weather and other potential threats. Uh, We also know that when we're thinking about home or when I'm thinking about home, I'm thinking about my surrounding community. So I'm thinking about, you know, the neighbors down the street who might need some help and support. I'm thinking about teachers and friends and how they all really play a part on how I think about about like my community, about like that's home to me. Um, so it's more than just a physical structure. It's more than just a commodity. It's really helped shape so much of, of my identity. And I think it reflects a lot of, 
of who we want to be and, and who we are. So that's, that's how I think about home. We'll just turn it over to Isabel. Sure, sure. I'll start by saying I've never spent so much time at home as I have over the past couple of years, as I'm sure uh, many of us are in the same boat. And so really, when I think of home these days, it's everything. It's, of course, shelter, uh, you know, the sense of identity that Trisha was talking about. It's also work. Uh, It's also school. I've got a couple of kids on their computers right now. It's the, the playground, the movie theater. It's just really everything right now. And so I'm so grateful uh, that I have a home that's safe, that's warm, and and that meets my needs and my family's needs. Great answers. And I've really come to love this question because I think it's just such a wonderful way to kind of break the ice of the interview and and the conversation. So thank you both. Uh, And so as I noted, you know, we're, we're sort of asked you to come on today to talk about this new report United Way released called Vertical Legacy. Great name, by the way. Uh, a case for revitalizing the GT's aging rental tower communities, which I think is a problem in a lot of our major aging cities. So can you talk to us a little bit about why this research was important for the United Way to do, and what was the process? Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Stefania, for the question. Uh, I'm going to start with a little bit of background just to help listeners understand some of the context behind the report. Uh, This was conceptualized initially as a 10-year follow-up or an update to a report that we released 10 years ago called Vertical Poverty, Poverty by Postal Code. And that report uh, presented new data, uh, certainly new at the time, looking at the growing concentrations of poverty, uh, spatial concentrations of poverty in the city of Toronto's inner suburban neighborhoods. And it, it really highlighted the connection between poverty and poor housing conditions at a neighborhood level, uh, particularly in these privately owned high-rise rental towers uh, in, in these suburban neighborhoods. And so vertical poverty was really instrumental because it noted this trend towards these like spatial geographic concentrations of poverty, uh, but also because it emphasized the, the assets of these high-rise buildings and these high-rise towers for the city and, and for renters, particularly low to moderate income renters. Uh, so fast forward 10 years, and amidst not only a, a heightened regional housing supply and affordability crisis, but also a global pandemic uh, that began to really expose the deep-seated structural inequities embedded in our systems and our policies and our institutions, including, of course, our, our housing systems and our health systems. Uh, we, we began asking ourselves what had changed over the past 10 years uh, since we'd led that original piece of research. and and were we still seeing the same concentrations of poverty in these communities? Uh, Had conditions improved or had they deteriorated? I mean, like everybody, we've been been tracking the data. So we had had a hunch that, you know, things had gotten worse um, and and that we we were seeing the increasing cost of housing and uh, across the GTA, but really across the country as well. And so we, we really wanted to learn more about who was living in these tower communities. Um, we knew, again, there, there was a lot that we knew. We knew there were large pockets of racialized and immigrant renters living in these towers, uh, but that wasn't really quite enough knowledge because one thing that we have learned through COVID is the importance of disaggregated data to help us see some of these underlying patterns of, of representations or over-representations in some cases. Uh, so we thought, well, you know, maybe we can get some disaggregated um, race-based data on on residents to see who was uh, overrepresented in these towers. Uh, we, we wanted also from a 
kind of from a policy perspective to understand what levers we could be pulling to help address some of the challenges faced by, uh, faced by tower residents. Uh, and finally, we also wanted to expand the, the, the geography to a regional picture across the GTA uh, with a focus of Peel, Toronto, and York region. You know, were, were Peel and York region towers experiencing the same challenges? Were they deteriorating in the same way? Uh, were there similar trends towards this, like, ethnocultural spatial segregation um, and, and segregation of, of poverty, really, within these towers? And so we had lots of questions. To help us think through these questions, we reached out to our, our partners. We're, we were working with uh, David Holchansky's shop at the Neighborhood Change Research Partnership out of U of T as well as the Tower Renewal Partnership, uh, headed by Graham Stewart, who you, who you probably know. And um, the Tower Renewal Partnership had been really piloting Tower Renewal Solutions, and, and they've been doing that work for over a decade. So in a sense, it was really a kind of a, a, a dream team, uh, dream partnerships. And so we started, you know, trying to uh, scope out some of the questions and, and try to answer uh, some of the questions. And, and as you know, if, if you've ever done research, it's a long process and it's a winding road, uh, which can be really frustrating, uh, I was going to say sometimes, but I think always. And so as we were in the process of the research throughout, some key principles really began to emerge, and that helped us guide development of the report. The, uh, the, the first one, as we began to analyze and make sense of the income and ethnocultural diversity data, which really showed growing income disparities between people renting in towers and, and other renters and, and homeowners. And then when we looked at the racial, like the, the ethnocultural data, we saw that racialized people, and in particular black Filipino and South Asian communities, as we started to look at the disaggregated data, um, and immigrant communities, of course, were most likely not only to live in towers, but to live in towers in low-income neighborhoods. And so as we, as we began processing this, we, uh, it became obvious that we really needed to go back to the framing of the report and frame it squarely within an equity and human rights lens. So we had to really center the report on the premise that housing is a human right uh, and that all people, regardless of income or racial or ethnic background, deserve to live in dignity. Um, in decent, secure, affordable housing. And so the, the report digs into how the affordable housing crisis really converges with these broader social and structural inequities, and including, of course, structural discrimination and racism. Uh, we also wanted to steer clear of the blame game. So, we're, you know, we're, we're not struggling through this housing affordability crisis because of some bad actors. Uh, we're, we're here because the market structures and the regulations enable uh, what's become a, a really um, untenable misalignment between average market rents and, and average earnings, particularly for low to moderate uh, income earners. And so, you know, just financialization is not illegal necessarily. And so, as we say in the report, existing market structures within the rental market are at odds with an affordability imperative. And so we didn't want to just kind of point, point the finger at that. We knew really from, from the beginning that we needed to stay solutions focused. And so we, we really started to look at, um, and our partners were really instrumental in helping us figure this out, but what progress had been made over the past decade. Uh, so we looked at that, and, and the report ends with a series of uh, 11 policy and program recommendations really directed across sectors uh, to help 
low-income tower residents make rent and access eviction prevention. We'll, we'll get into this later in the conversation, I'm sure. Uh, encourage kind of maintenance of these units and affordability and to strengthen the social infrastructure within, uh, within these communities as well. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Fascinating stuff. I love uh, the changes and how you describe that uh, and can't wait to hear about the recommendations. Before we get into recommendations, though, uh, I want to know, you know, with this uh, awesome work that you did uh, 10 years later, what were some of the key findings in, in doing the research and, and were there any surprises? Uh, yeah, thanks so much. So I think, you know, as Isabel touched upon as we were doing this research, we, we knew that things had gotten worse, but we really wanted to understand the extent to which. And then we were also able to do that comparison in Peel and York, right? So this work has started in Toronto. And so we were able to expand that, that geographical reach and look a little bit deeper. And so what we were able to see is that, yes, there are those continued structural issues that continue um, in, in the towers in York as well as in Peel. Um, really major issues like uh, plumbing issues, electrical wiring issues, and, and aspects that really make it uncomfortable to live going back to, you know, the importance of, of running, of completing this report to highlight those issues. So what we learned was that even though we know that there are a lot of structural issues and major repairs that are required, that these places are still really, um, they're really sought after by those individuals who are low and moderate income because they are relatively affordable. They're more affordable than um, other types of housing. So this is why individuals who um, are struggling financially are likely to look to um, this type of housing uh, to, to house their families. So when we were looking across, we were able to see that in terms of those um, inadequate housing conditions, that there are about 30,000 households across the region who are living in those inadequate conditions. So we're living in towers and units that require those really major structural repairs and those upgrades um, to plumbing. We also know that, especially thinking about, as Isabel touched on, as we were thinking about this report and the conditions and suitability um, of these towers, that we know that there are a lot of individuals who um, are, are almost doubling up and there are multiple people and living in really crowded conditions. So we know that within these towers, because they're affordable, we might have families who um, are more than one family who might, be, might have been intended to live in this particular unit might, uh, might join another family just so that they can uh, manage the costs. Uh, we know that, um, that the impact that can have on uh, when there are more than one family or more people in a particular unit that's intended, it becomes really stressful from um, a physical point of view, we know through COVID, the, the closer we are in proximity to other individuals that we might be able to be transferring illnesses more easily. So that aspect of space really becomes an issue and needing to have more space. And we can't see that in, in the towers in these situations. We also know that the, the psychological stress and distress that can happen um, when individuals are overcrowded in a space when there's just not enough, um, there isn't that quiet corner where you can have where you just need to kind of decompress at the end of the day. 
but they're affordable. So um, families end up staying there um, despite the fact of their family size, even if they don't have enough uh, bedrooms for their children. Um, they might just stay there because it is a place that, uh, that they can afford. Um, and so that kind of brings us to the affordability aspect. When we look across and we see the actual amount that individuals are spending, we know that these uh, particular units are on average about 13% cheaper to live in than other housing types and other rental types. So on average, it's about $142 in the GTA um, in terms of uh, that, that savings that individuals that are living in these particular towers are going to get. So again, it's, it's really that affordable aspect compared to other household types. Um, which brings us more to the, when we start thinking about, um, uh, about the income levels of these particular tenants, we know that many of the tenants in these our units are, they're really struggling to make ends meet. So about 49%, um, almost half of these renters are considered to be low income, meaning that they're earning on average about $39,000 before tax. And the study period that we looked at, looking at those trends between 1980 to 2015, we're able to see, and Isabel touched on this as well, that when we look at the income levels of high-rise renters compared to homeowners, we know that there's about a 5% increase in that time period in terms of the income levels that renters were, uh, that they were acquiring compared to homeowners over that same time period. When we start thinking about the, the, the budgetary trade-offs and decisions that households are going to have to make, when you only have that 5% increase versus that 41% increase, we know that it's going to be a lot easier um, likely for those households to be making those decisions when it comes to, like for households, household owners to be making decisions around food costs, transportation costs, medical costs, when we compare those to, to high-rise uh, renters. And what we also saw through this research is when we're thinking about affordability, the generally accepted threshold is that 30% threshold, that if you're spending um, 30% or more on your household, of your household income on, on shelter costs, then that is considered to be unaffordable. So what we saw over that time period is that not only are we seeing more households who are in that 30% threshold, but also an increase of those who are in that 50% threshold who are spending more than their, um, their household income, 50% of their household income on shelter costs. And so that really does start speaking to the deep unaffordability um, issue that we're seeing across our region and that increase over time. So a really deeply concerning trend as well. And then finally, um, Isabel touched on this, the, the importance of having that disaggregated data. We were able to take a look to see the impact that, um, or who really is affected from, um, from an ethnographic perspective. And we were able to see that racialized individuals um, are more likely to be low income. They're more likely to be a part of the working poor and to experience housing um, insecurity and instability compared to non-racialized groups. So 47% of all racialized renters uh, live in a high-rise apartment. The highest proportion would be Black at 55%, Filipino at 53%, and then South Asian at 48%. And then we also see that over that 40, uh, over that 35-year time period, that there's been an increase of about 40%. Um, of legacy towers, these high-rise towers that are actually located in low-income neighborhoods. So again, we see this as a really concerning trend to see that 40% um, over those three decades of, of that low-income threshold. And then what we can also know from all of this is that uh, this means that we, what we're seeing is that racialized renters are not only 
more likely to be segregated by uh, by housing type, but also by neighborhood, because we're much more likely to find these towers, again, in low-income neighborhoods. So these were some of the surprising or some of the trends that we found. And I think, as Isabel noted, we, we knew some of this before, but it really brought it home when we could actually see the proportion and, and the stag, the, especially the deep unaffordability, and how much that has changed and that, that very, very concerning trend over time. Important information um, that your research has found that I think, you know, backs up a lot of what we know anecdotally. And I also think it kind of echoes across Canada. So I'm, I'm based out in Vancouver. And when you were talking about that affordability piece, it was reminding me of this um, article that came out in just September where um, Vancouver, the city of Vancouver deemed affordable a three-bedroom rental going for $3,600 in East Vancouver. When you go to West Vancouver, which tends to be a little bit more high-end, high like luxury homes and so on, it's like $4,000. And so, you know, when you think about the kind of income level you need if you're a family, if you're a family with, you know, one parent, you have one or two kids, like, I just think, you know, and then given the uh, when you're talking about sort of like de desegregated data and the impact on uh, communities that are racialized, I just think, you know, we're continuing to see this problem in Vancouver mount as well. So I think the learnings from the GTA are, are really, really excellent. Um, and so given all of these findings that you talked about, Tricia, Isabel, I was wondering if you can step us through kind of what you talked or mentioned before about what the recommendations are coming out of the work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Maybe I'll just be, before I get into the recommendations, because uh, Stefania, you referenced the title at the beginning, and I don't think we've actually defined kind of what we mean by legacy uh, towers. So we're really talking about these uh, older uh, purpose-built high-rise, I mean, they, some of them are mid-rise because it's five stories or more towers uh, built before 1985. And the reason they're called legacy is they are the legacy of, of federal incentive programs. Uh, that were in place through the 60s and 70s that really helped build this um, this rental stock across Canada. And so our, our report is focused squarely on the GTA, but I think a lot of the um, kind of trends are, are similar and, and similarly relevant to, to other jurisdictions, and including Vancouver and other cities across the, uh, across the country. So I just wanted to slip that into, into the conversation as well. Um, in terms of the recommendations, as I, as I referenced earlier, there are uh, 11 policy and program recommendations. It was um, uh, hard to, to hone it down to, to those 11 because there are so many more. And so maybe just another comment to make is that uh, this work exists as, uh, as part of a much broader kind of co co contribution to um, solutions to our, our affordable housing crisis. And so the, these 11 uh, recommendations, we break out into three buckets in the report. And, and, and we do that to make them comprehensible, but they really do need to be thought of uh, holistically and, and working together to, to make change. And, and before I jump into the three buckets, I should say, and, and we do reference this in the report, that the recommendations build off a, a really excellent foundation of of existing research, some pilot projects and actions advanced uh, across sectors, both public and private, over the past decade. And so the, the, there is a kind of a, a much broader movement and, and this report and, and United Way is uh, operating within a, a much broader ecosystem of people working in this space. 
so in our report, the, the first bucket of recommendations is really focused on strengthening financial and structural supports for low-income legacy tower residents. Uh, the, the reasons are because of what Tricia just outlined in terms of the, the, the vast disproportionalities and the vast, um, uh, dist I, I guess, I don't know what the right word is, but the, the, the gaps between the incomes that people are earning and the cost of rent. And so we include recommendations to enhance the social safety net by uh, modernizing EI and increasing, again, this is Ontario focused, but Ontario's social assistance rates to account for increased cost of living. Um, we include recommendations to expand and improve access to eviction prevention services. Uh, and, and, and there's one that I think has really extremely high potential for, for immediate impact in communities. We include a recommendation to amend the Residential Tenancies Act to regulate rents on vacant units for existing rental housing. So essentially, we're calling for the end of vacancy decontrol policies that enable and allow building owners to increase rent by, by any amount between tenants. Uh, the second bucket is focused on strengthening the physical infrastructure of these buildings themselves. So these are the more traditional, you know, quote unquote, tower renewal type of recommendations. And so looking at changes to existing repair and re renewal programs to um, incentivize uptake by private building owners. Several programs exist, uh, but the, the uptake is low. And so we, we think that there are probably some tweaks and changes uh, to make them more uh, more accessible for, for these private building owners, which is really the, the, the focus of the report. Um, we call for joint federal, provincial, municipal funding for demonstration projects in, in private towers that can really act as models of what is possible and calls to enhance or develop new uh, building standard bylaws and proactive enforcement programs that mandate things like development of a capital repair and electrical management plan. Uh, which, which I, I quite honestly, be, before digging into this research, thought was um, w was mandated, but it, it's not like that in in all of the jurisdictions. And finally, the third bucket is focused on strengthening the social infrastructure within legacy tower communities, because ultimately the, there are people uh, who live in these buildings. And so we know that culturally responsive and, and relevant social infrastructure is really critical to building sense of place, as Trisha kind of referenced in. Uh, in her response to what home means to her. Uh, we know that this is critical also for social capital co connections, as we discussed last time I was on your, on your podcast. And the infrastructure really needs to be uh, place-based, resident-driven to ensure that uh, these spaces and services are, are reflective of resident uh, visions and aspirations. And so with this in mind, we call for expanded access to uh, culturally relevant community services in tower communities. We call for support for placemaking initiatives, uh, tenant organizing, uh, as well as support for neighborhood social development plans or, or other inclusive community-centered neighborhood imp improvement plans really focused on engaging residents in the planning and revitalization process. Um, and, and I'll just end by saying, while resident engagement really comes out strongest in this third uh, bucket of, of policy priorities around social infrastructure within these communities, um, engagement uh, with residents is, and, and consultation with community members is required really across uh, all, all, of the, uh, all, all of the 
policy buckets um, and engagement with people with lived experience of housing discrimination and housing insecurity to, to really ensure that they are, uh, that the solutions are meeting people's needs and aspirations. Those are all very reasonable and doable. Uh, awesome recommendations. And speaking of the doing part of it, uh, what, what can be done to address the issues you outline regarding the availability and adequacy of the units? Yeah, so I can, I can take that one. Um, I think what we really want to make sure that we're doing is, as Isabel outlined, you know, that we've, we've proposed kind of like three different buckets, but what we want to make sure is that we're looking at all of those recommendations holistically, that we recognize that they all need to happen and they need to happen um, kind of in coordination and collaboration with each other. So we want to make sure that we're involving all the different actors, the different sectors that can really and we really optimize those partnerships and relationships to advance the work. And we found that that is often when we have the most successes, when we have a, a whole bunch of different people, different brains coming to the table um, to really um, to think through how they can advance that work. And so through the recommendations, we've also kind of identified um, who can do what and how we can advance that. So hopefully um, those cross collaborations will, will continue to come into effect and we hope to continue to play a role to make sure that the recommendations do become enacted. So, so that's one, uh, one thing that needs to happen. Um, another that needs to happen is definitely to ensure and to continue looking, taking that equity lens to the work that we're doing. Um, you know, we spent uh, the, through the report, we do talk about, as I mentioned in my, uh, previously, that we do look at that disaggregated data. So we definitely see, you know, which pockets of the population are being most, uh, most impacted um, with this particular issue. And so what can we do uh, by taking that equity lens, we can really work to address some of the structural and systemic issues that we, we know exist within our community and really um, kind of address those, those barriers by taking that, uh, that particular equity focused lens to the work. Um, and the other thing that we want to make sure that we're doing is, you know, we definitely recognize the, um, we want to make sure that we're taking a two-pronged approach because we recognize that, you know, building more affordable housing, we completely support that and want to make sure that that happens. But we also want to make sure, as this report outlines, is that we want to maintain this, this stock. This is, you know, an asset to our region. Um, so we want to make sure that we're taking that two-pronged approach where we're protecting what we have, we're maintaining what we have. Um, updating it and upgrading to the extent that we can, um, and as well as building new. So those are kind of the three things that we think that should really happen in order to address some of the, the issues that we outlined throughout the report. So, so let's talk about impact a little bit. Um, you put all this work with the support, we've got recommendations. Um, what do you hope the impact of this work will be? Talked about legacy too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no pressure. Um, for, for me, the North Star is always social change. And so in a sense, it starts with changing cultural norms and, and mindsets around what we as a society think is acceptable. Uh, so with regards to housing affordability, and the equity lens that's so important for us to kind of layer on top of this, we, we need to cement the belief uh, really across uh, all sectors um, that decent, secure, affordable housing is a fundamental human right for, for everybody, re, you know, regardless of income, regardless of um, immigration status, et cetera. 
so in in that sense, I mean, I, I hope that the well, first, I hope people pick up and read the report, uh, and, and I hope that it can be leveraged and really utilized by community advocates, by decision makers, by policy makers uh, to help action the recommendations in, in support of fairer, more equitable housing conditions for all. Because again, like I said earlier, this is really about improving the living conditions of people within these towers um, and, and making sure that people can have that kind of pride of place and, and pride of home. Sure, they can find the report on the uh, United Way Greater Toronto website. So that is unitedwaygt.org. Uh, it's, a, it's a recently refreshed website. So if you haven't been there for a bit, you might notice that it looks a little bit different. Uh, you can head to the work tab and, and scroll to the bottom and you'll find uh, access to all of our reports there. That's awesome. And because this report is so great, uh, I know Michael and I are both very curious what you folks are working on now that we can look forward to. Yeah, I can touch upon um, some of the work that we're hoping to do and then I'll turn it over to Isabel. But um, I think what we're hoping to do is really maintain a lot of momentum with this report to continue to do kind of engagement sessions, to do uh, some more knowledge mobilization around the contents of the report continue to reach out to different actors to make sure that this, this work kind of stays on, uh, on the agenda, on the focus, um, and that make, we make sure that it's a part of the, the housing solution in our region. So that's kind of the work that I'm going to be focused on over the next little while, is just continue connecting with different individuals um, about this particular, about this issue. Yeah, and then maybe I'll, uh, I'll add in, it's non-housing related, but we are in the midst of some case study research really aimed at harvesting innovations made by social service agencies during the pandemic. It's, it's an exciting piece of work for me and from my perspective, because it really is attempting to identify some best practices relevant to other practitioners uh, across the sector. We're, we're aiming to have these ready by the spring and we'll share them widely a lot of uh, learning and, and supporting of kind of, you know, what, what people reference, just like the, the modernization of the sector um, to be gleaned through, through those case studies. Well, listen, this work is outstanding. It's so important, both Trisha and Isabel, you know, you could have sat back and said, hey, my work is done, drop the mic and walked away. No one would have blamed you, but you are far from doing that. You're turning up the, the pace uh, and, doing, and continuing to do important, impactful work. We're so grateful to have you on the show, grateful for you uh, bringing this forward uh, and sharing it widely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really, really glad to be here. I'm uh, happy to talk about our research anytime. Thanks again. Well, Michael, that was, uh, you know, another really amazing conversation. And, you know, when we're, we're talking about these, you know, legacy buildings that have been around for quite some time and, and folks have been living there since, you know, they, they were built, that really is home to them. And I think it gets really tough when we're building, you know, new buildings like in Vancouver and rent is considered affordable at $3,700 for a three bedroom. Like, it's just wild. How can people 
it, no wonder they're, you know, continuing to go back to where rent is, you know, as Trisha noted, like 13% cheaper, right, than, than other buildings. It's, it's keeping people in a tough situation. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I think that I picked up from this too is that we're so forward focused sometimes on we need to create new affordable housing, we need to build new affordable housing, mm -hmm. that we forget about the current affordable housing stock that we have that yeah. this report shows is decaying, is falling apart, is not mm -hmm. adequate anymore, and, and reinvesting in that as well. And we saw that with, say, Toronto Community Housing, where they had, God, I remember, it was probably billions of dollars worth of backlog repairs. So wow. if you don't pay attention to that, you're actually sliding backwards. You're not yeah. keeping up, you're not building new affordable housing because you're losing more than you're building. Uh, and it's important. These towers are important. They are home for people. They are affordable or more affordable. I was gonna be careful with that, but more affordable. Uh, this is important work. And let's hope that all the recommendations are picked up and acted on. Yeah, absolutely. I think we know that there's that difference between affordability and deeply affordable. And I think we always need to be mindful of that when we're looking to kind of add to the units, because obviously there's also a scarcity, you know, and I think um, reports like this, like you mentioned, are just really critical when we start looking ahead and planning ahead. So I thought it was great having them on the show. And yeah, I guess I will see you next week. Yes, listen, we're off to a great start with this for 2022 and guaranteed it just keeps getting better and better there are wonderful people out there both experts and lived experts doing great work they'll all be on the way home whether you're listening to this uh, in your home or on your way home we thank you uh, subscribe share and we'll see you next time see you then Steph I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.